Um, This evening's reading is from Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 to 13, and that is found on page 1005 of the Church Bibles. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Josie, thank you very much for reading. Uh, As uh, Amy said earlier on, we're back in Hebrews in the evening, two Corinthians in the morning, just for three weeks. Uh, Hebrews 8 and 9 and 10, one big section. We're going to look at it together. Uh, But as we do, let's pray and ask the Lord for his help. Our letter to the Hebrews begins with these words. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Our Father, as we gather together this evening under your word, and as we hear these verses about the Lord Jesus Christ, it is our desire to know him, to love him, and to follow him. And we pray that you would work in our hearts by your spirit that we might do those things. In his name, amen. Now in our house we have a large dolly called Big Baby. And she's now about 40 years old. Big Baby was Joe, my wife's dolly, when she was little. Uh, and when our girls were little, Big Baby was often seen uh, pushed around in a buggy or uh, having picnics or having a nappy change, things like that. Now, to be honest, Big Baby is a little bit past her best. She's a bit floppy and her head kind of faces the wrong way. Uh, but it still looks like a baby, a big 
one, uh, in fact. Now, imagine the day when my wife Jo gave birth to Abigail, our oldest. Uh, Don't imagine the birth bit, that's not it. Just imagine the day uh, when we brought our first child home uh, to our little first floor flat. And imagine this, we drove home from the hospital, we took Abigail out of the car and uh, brought her up the stairs, and we took her to her room, put her down in the little basket thing that you always have, And then Jo did this weird thing. She went into the lounge and she set up a little picnic rug on the floor, put up teacups and little pot and plates, and she goes over to the cupboard, she opens the door and pulls out big baby and brings her over and starts to play with her. Imagine that. Now, to be clear, this didn't actually happen, but if it did, what would you say? You'd say, Jo, you've absolutely lost it. What are you doing? The big baby might look like a baby, and she may have taught you lots about babies when you were little, but she's a doll, she's a copy, she's an imitation. Now you've got a real one. It's crazy to go back to that old thing. Don't go back to big baby. Put her away and come and take hold in your arms the real thing. She's so much better so much more precious. Why am I saying that slightly strange story? Well, the writer to the Hebrews has been telling his Jewish hearers again and again that Jesus Christ is the real deal, that he is better, better than all that old Judaism has to offer. So they're tempted to return to the old religion that they once knew and really valued, But our author keeps saying, no, don't go back to that. What you had was good for back then, but now you have something far better, something far more precious, the real deal, Jesus Christ. Keep looking at Jesus, says our author. Jesus is better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than everything. All that old stuff, it was good, but it was only meant to point you to the real thing. And now that he has come and he has died for you and he has risen from the dead and ascended into heaven, well, you must cling to him. It would be crazy to go back to the old ways. Now, in particular, in this central section of the letter, the focus of our gaze is on Jesus Christ as a better high priest. That in having him as our high priest, we need no other kind of priest. And we must not go back to any old style of priesthood. And if you're a Jewish believer, that was very tempting for you. Now, to say this to a largely Jewish audience, it's going to take some explaining, some persuading. And so that's what our author does, particularly in chapters 8 to 10. He takes his time to prove to his hearers that Jesus is a superior high priest in three main ways. And they're introduced to us here in chapter 8, and then they're expanded upon in chapters 9 and 10. So here they are. These are on the back of uh, your service sheets. Jesus is a superior or a better high priest uh, 
Because one, he has offered a superior sacrifice. Two, he now ministers in a superior place. And three, that therefore he mediates a superior covenant. Superior sacrifice, superior place, and a superior covenant. That's the structure. So verse one, the superior sacrifice that Christ has made. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. From chapter 4 to chapter 7, we've been zeroing in on this truth that Jesus Christ is a perfect, permanent high priest sat down at God's right hand in heaven. Now, why is he sat down? Why is he seated? Well, it means that his sacrificial work is finished. So on earth, uh, there were no seats in the tabernacle or the temple. The priests couldn't sit down in the holy places. And the reason for that was because, well, the priests' work there was never done. Day after day after day, they stood there. They kept on making sacrifices, both for themselves, because they kept sinning, and for the people, because they kept sinning. The sacrifices just weren't sufficient to deal with the amount of sin involved. They couldn't keep up, so the priests couldn't sit down because their sacrificial work was never done. And the effect of that on us, on the people, I think is a lack of assurance. You're always wondering, look, is my sin really paid for? Is it paid in full if we keep having to do this? But our author has kept reminding us, and he said it several times in the letter, that Jesus Christ is sat down in heaven. Why? Because he has completed his perfect sacrifice on earth. That's how he can ascend into heaven. He's completed his perfect sacrifice. Actually, we've been told this just before, but we were in chapter 7 so long ago, we've probably forgotten. Chapter 7, verse 27, we were told there that he has made his sacrifice once for all when he offered up himself on the cross. The high priest took the sins of his people upon himself and died under the wrath of God for them. His sacrifice was sufficient to pay the penalty for all the sins of God's people, for your sins and for mine, once for all. He's already done it at the cross. And then he rises from death, he ascends into heaven, and he can sit down. He's finished his work of atonement. And that means that the way is open for us by faith to freely approach a holy God in heaven with a clean conscience. Sometimes it's really hard to keep going as a Christian. Sometimes it's hard because of external factors. But one thing that I've noticed over over my life, and I I know other people have experienced too, is that we can become discouraged and disheartened by our own sinfulness, can't we? We're fighting sin, we want to fight sin, but we're so conscious of it in our lives that we can become weighed down by guilt and by shame. 
And alongside that, what we do is we, we tend to look at our non-Christian friends who seem to be living their lives without worrying at all about their sin. And well, we're tempted to think, aren't we, that, it, that it's just not worth it. We might as well just jack it all in and give up fighting it. We think that would be easier. Ever felt like that? But that's not the answer to our struggle against sin or the guilt that we carry. The answer is to look at our high priest in heaven and see what he's doing. See that he is sat down. He sat down. There's a song we often sing that captures it well. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. If you trust in Jesus Christ, then you can know that through his death, he has made full atonement for your sins. That he sat down, it tells you that his work is done, it's finished, that it's all paid for. And so my guilt and my shame can be let go. Through seeing him as our sat down high priest, we gain complete assurance of our relationship with God. And we need that assurance as we make our way through the wilderness of life. We have such a high priest seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. He's a superior high priest because he's already made his superior and sufficient sacrifice. That's the first thing. Second, uh, the place, this is verse two, the superior place that Christ now ministers. Verse two, he is a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. When I was about 12, um, I tried to learn the name of every football stadium in all four of England's divisions. I know what you're thinking, you just didn't know that I was that cool, did you? Well, I'm not sure that I could get all of them now. I still can remember a few of them, but please don't uh, test me. But because of this, I know that there are two clubs in England whose ground shares exactly the same name, which is St. James's Park. There are two St. James's Parks, and they're at different ends of the country, and the clubs are, that play there, there are different, entirely different uh, ends of the league. So there's Exeter City, who play down in St. James's Park uh, in Devon, in League One. They've got an 8,000 capacity. I looked that up, I didn't memorise that. Um, they play in that St. James's Park. And then there's Saudi and Newcastle United, who are currently third in the Premier League, who play at the 52,000-seater St. James's Park up in the northeast. So they're hugely different, both in terms of the talent and the prestige and uh, the wealth. Now imagine that you meet a footballer, a professional footballer, and he claims, uh, when you ask him where he applies his trade, he says, well, I play at St. James's Park. It makes a massive difference, doesn't it, which one he plays in. Now, no offence to any Exeter City uh, supporters in attendance, but I know which one is the greater of the two. And I know something of the greatness of the footballer as well, depending on which of the two at St. James's Park he played. 
See, despite the similarities, one place of work is far superior to the other. Now, that analogy is a little bit inadequate, but you get the point. The point here in verse 2 is this, that Jesus Christ is a superior priest because he ministers in a superior place, a similar but superior place. Where does verse 2 say Jesus ministers? He is a minister in the holy places, in the true tents that the Lord set up, not man. So this is where Jesus now serves. He serves in heaven, not on earth. He serves in the true tent, the true tabernacle, which is set up by God in heaven, which is far greater than the one set up by man on earth. Now, as we, as we saw, Jesus' service there is not to make sacrifices. He's not standing in sacrificial mode. No, he's seated. Actually, we were told what his service was back in chapter 7, in chapter 7, verse 25, the nature of his service. His ministry now is that of intercession. That is, he's praying for us. He's interceding for us. He's pleading our case before God, helping us by his prayers to keep going in the Christian life. But the superior place of his service is the author's point. Now, verse 3 and 4, they're a little tricky to understand. I think what he means there is simply to show that Jesus did not have a priestly ministry on earth. He wasn't a Levite. Uh, he, he couldn't offer gifts and sacrifices according to the law. See, they'd make sacrifices in the temple courts. They'd make them outside uh, in the court on the altar, and then they'd carry the blood into the holy places to intercede uh, before God for the people. Jesus never did that on earth. I mean, he wasn't allowed to. He wasn't a Levite. But his sacrifice of himself on earth has enabled him to enter the true holy place in heaven, where he now is, in God's very presence, and where he now creates access to God for us by his blood. See, all this means that his intercessory ministry is better because he is closer to God. He's in God's actual presence in heaven, and he'll never leave it. And at this point, our author uh, explains to us the purpose of the earthly priestly system. Because they might be asking that, you know, if Jesus is doing this now, then what was the point of all this priesthood stuff and all the sacrifices and all the uh, ministry that was going on on earth? Well, it was, verse 5, a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. The real sanctuary, the real holy place, that's in heaven where God dwells. But in history, in Moses' day on Mount Sinai, God gave Moses a blueprint, a pattern, verse 6 calls it, a pattern by which he could create a model on earth of that heavenly reality. Why did God do that? He did it to show people what they really needed 
and to point them to the fulfilment of that reality in Jesus Christ. Let me try and explain the implication of this. See, just as a child's dolly might prepare them for motherhood with a real baby, but which then is rightly discarded when the real thing comes, so the model of the tabernacle and the temple and the priestly ministry that took place there It's now no longer necessary because the true priest who ministers in the true tabernacle of heaven has come. And in fact, it would be crazy, wouldn't it, to to go back to the kind of shadowy copy of the old priesthood now that the real thing has come into our possession. We have now such a high priest, a minister in the holy places of heaven, That's the second way he's better. Not only because he's made a superior sacrifice, but because he now ministers to us from a superior place, from the true tabernacle in heaven, where he intercedes for us at the right hand of God. Now on to the third and final way that Jesus is better. Verse 6 to 13, it's because of the superior covenant that Christ now mediates. Verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Now, what's a covenant? Well, Simply put, a covenant is a firm agreement between two parties and it establishes the boundaries of the relationship, how the relationship's going to work. So it's about the terms of a a relationship. So Moses was given a covenant by God, which we now call the Old Covenant, uh, up on Mount Sinai. God rescued Israel out of Egypt. He, as his part, he promised to, to be their God, to love and care for them. And for their part, he told them that they were to keep the commandments. And that's what they promised to do. That was to be the relationship. That was the terms of the covenant. Now, the priests, they were the mediators of that covenant. So they worked in the middle to maintain the relationship between God and the people. They stood between the people and God. They made sure that the two parties could continue to relate to one another. They taught people God's law. They made sacrifices for when the law was broken. And they interceded for the people. They pleaded their case before God on the basis of the shed blood of the sacrifices. They stood between. But we've already seen in Hebrews that the old covenant was failing. And it wasn't the fault of God. It was the fault of the people because they kept breaking its terms. They weren't obedient. And the covenant itself, it couldn't make people perfect. And the priests, well, they failed too. They weren't particularly good mediators. They, they weren't perfect. They kept on sinning as well. And our writer here, he wants to persuade his Jewish audience of this. So how does he do it? What's his technique? Well, he turns to the scriptures. He shows them that the Old Covenant's faults were made clear many centuries before 
and that the new covenant was promised many centuries before and that that covenant is so much better. And incidentally, this is the longest quote of the Old Testament in the entirety of the New Testament and it's from Jeremiah verse 31 to 34. Now the first part of Jeremiah's prophecy, it highlights the fault with the old covenant. That's verses seven to nine. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. It's very clear, the people were the problem, they broke God's law. And that meant the relationship, the covenant relationship with God was broken. Jeremiah wrote this prophecy at a time when that judgment was being enacted. It was just as uh, the exile came into full effect. But God, out of his great love for rebellious people, he had already planned for a new covenant to be made. And our writer points out that the moment that God said that in Jeremiah's day, it should have been clear that the old covenant had an expiry date stamped on it makes this point in verse 13, right at the end of our passage. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So the old covenant relationship with God is vanishing. Along with its sacrifices and its priesthoods and its holy places. When the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed, and just a few years after Hebrews is written, these words come true, it really does vanish. But in its place, a new and a superior covenant relationship is promised by which we can now draw near uh, to God. A new covenant is created by Jesus through his sacrifice, and it's mediated to us by his intercessory ministry in heaven. And the second half of the quote, it reveals just how superior it is. In three different ways again. First of all, because it brings inner transformation. That's verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. To the old covenant, it taught the people how to please God through the law. Uh, which was written on tablets of stone, but that could not give them either the power nor the desire to keep God's law. And so they failed and they broke their relationship with God. In short, the law could not change their hearts. But here we see that in Christ's new covenant, a radical inner transformation takes place. He sends the Spirit of God into the heart of the believer And by his grace at work in us, we are changed. Changed so that we now want to keep God's word and that we now have the power to obey it. 
to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. So as new covenant people, we're changed, changed from the inside out, a holy people in heart and mind as well as in life, inner transformation. Second, in the new covenant, we all gain, verse 11, personal knowledge of God. And they shall not teach each one his neighbour and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Under this new covenant, each person, whether man or woman, young or old, rich or poor, important, ordinary, whether from a religious background or from an irreligious one, whether their life is seemingly all together or whether their life looks a total mess, each person from the least to the greatest can know the Lord in a deep and personal way in their own heart and life. The youngest child in Little Stars can know the Lord in their hearts just as intimately as the longest serving elder in the church. Now they may have different levels of awareness and understanding and Bible knowledge and all those things, but God himself is as much present and known in each of his new covenant people. It's really remarkable inner transformation and personal knowledge of God. We can know God, each of us, so much better than the old. But third, and finally, we discover the fundamental blessing, the fundamental blessing, and the one that makes the other two possible, actually. So just if you see at this beginning of verse 12, there's a four. At four there, it shows us that this last thing is the means by which the other two blessings come about. In Christ's new covenant, we gain full forgiveness of sins, verse 12. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. It's really a remarkable promise. Under the Old Covenant, the, the Jewish people, they had experienced God's forgiveness. They've experienced it many, many times. But when Jeremiah writes that they'd come under the curse of the, the Old Covenant, of death and destruction and exile, and it seemed as though there really was no forgiveness possible for them. Yet in that moment, God promised a new covenant that he will bring about one where he will not only show mercy to them, but where he will forgive them so fully that he will remember their sins no more. So when God remembers sin, he has to punish it, doesn't he? See, he's a, he's a just God. Sin has to be punished. And so for God to say that he will choose not to remember their sins, well, well, that can only mean one thing, that his justice has already been satisfied. That their sins have already been punished. And in the New Covenant, of course, that's what's happened. God's wrath against our sins has been fully borne by Jesus Christ on the cross. 
And so they're done and dusted. They're paid in full. They're dealt with. They can be put away for good. I will remember their sins no more. It's astonishing good news. This is what our great high priest has achieved for us. What does all this mean? Well, if you're not yet a Christian, here's what this is saying for you tonight. That there is a way, in fact, only one way, to be fully forgiven and transformed. There's a way that you might know God personally. And that's through Jesus Christ. Place your faith in Jesus Christ and his perfect sacrifice for sins and you can know relationship with God. So can I encourage you just to consider that tonight. If you are a Christian, here's what this means for us. Grasp hold of the truth that Jesus Christ is the high priest of the new covenant. That's what we need to know. Know that we have such a high priest. Cling to him. Keep this in your heart and in your mind in order that you make it through the wilderness of the Christian life. So if you've ever doubted that God is on your side... Know that Jesus is in the holy places interceding for you. He's praying for you that you might be helped as you seek to follow him. If you've ever wondered if you can change, whether your struggle with sin is worth it, then know that God has put his law into your mind and heart, that that he's with you, that you do know him, and that your relationship with him is utterly secure. And if you've ever doubted that your sins are fully paid for, know that he is sat down. See him there. His work of atonement complete. That in Christ, God says of you, I will remember your sins no more. Let's pray together. Lord God, our Father, we look to our Saviour and our great High Priest, Jesus Christ. We thank you for all that he has done in his sacrifice for us. All that he does now for us as he intercedes before your throne. And the assurance that we have that our sins are fully paid for and forgiven. Lord, would you burn this truth into our minds and hearts? Would you cause us to remember it? And particularly when we're struggling with sin, help us to look at our great high priest, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.